Hello and welcome to episode 94 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Grant McCauley. Grant covers the Braves for 92.9 The Game in Atlanta. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Grant McCauley. Grant, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Hey, no problem. I'm glad to be here and uh, look forward to chatting some Braves. Well, Grant, I ask everyone this right at the top of the show. Tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. Oh, goodness. Um, That's probably a long story. We could probably do a whole podcast on that. Uh, I guess just kind of growing up in in Georgia and just kind of following the Braves when they weren't so great, but they had this guy named Dale Murphy, and it was just kind of a a charismatic and um, just almost, I guess, the when you think about your baseball heroes, he certainly you you check all the boxes there. So I really got into the Braves because of TBS. I guess they were really accessible. My grandfather was big into the Braves, and it was just something we kind of connected with, and Dale Murphy was that connective tissue, if you will. So all of a sudden, when Murph left, the Braves got really good, and it was just something that we were able to enjoy for uh, many, many years, me and my grandfather. So it just kind of stood out to me when I realized I wasn't going to be able to play baseball, that getting to sit around and talk about it is a pretty good job, too. So I just kind of jumped in and haven't looked back. I'm in 14, 15 years now, so it's a lot of uh, a lot of memories have been made, certainly, with my time in baseball. Now, Murphy's still around a little bit. He makes appearances sometimes. Is that a guy that you've actually met and interacted with since? Yeah, it's, it's been tremendous, the opportunity to meet Dale and talk to him, and he is one of the most personable and approachable guys that I've come across in the business, and he uh, he's just an incredibly giving individual as well to uh, the fans, the public, the, the Braves fans. I'm sure that have followed him for years and years. It's just kind of great to have Murph around. He opened up a restaurant not too far from the new ballpark, so still makes some appearances. And it's always great to have him. He's been really kind enough to you know grant me a lot of interviews and access and just general conversation. And uh, yeah, it's been been really cool to make that connection and have the opportunity to kind of speak to somebody that really got me into the game. I want to talk about the Braves a lot, obviously, because they're really good, and I think that's surprising a lot of people, including myself. But I want to talk about, before we get to this present day, how we got here. Because in 2013, they had a team that featured Andrelton Simmons and Jason Hayward, Craig Kimbrell, and Freddie Freeman was around then too. And all of these guys, this was supposed to be the young nucleus for the next great Braves team. They won 96 games that year. The next year, they didn't do too well, and then they blew everything up. And there's always been a question with this Braves rebuild is, did they do it too early? So what do you think? Did they blow things up too early? No, it's hard to say. I guess we'll find out in the next few years if this thing bears fruit, which it looks like it is now. And of course, having the minor league system that they have, you feel hopeful that there's a lot of talent still to come. Some of it has established itself right now, and then some of it we're going to see in the next, what, probably two, three, four years, maybe more. But I think keeping Freddie Freeman around was an interesting way to go about a rebuild because you kept a franchise caliber player. And most teams, when they do that and when they decide to rebuild, they really just tear it all the way down to the studs. Braves did that with one exception, and that would be Freddie Freeman and maybe Julio Tehran. I guess you could say he's the other guy that they they really held on to because at some point you have to commit to that for it to work. And I think that the Braves may have been somewhat of an unwilling participant in some ways to really just throw in the towel on winning after doing it you know, so often for about 25 year span. But I think that it has, I think that it was a good decision insofar as with a middle market payroll, even if you're in a top market media wise, they really needed to get creative. And I think that going out and, you know, signing BJ Upton to a five-year contract for a, a franchise record amount of money and, you know, making some trades that get you some players over for a, a short period of time, two, three years before, you know, that window is up. You really just seem to be, you know, pushing that kind of that fringe contender status. 
and not really having the you know the ability through the farm system to replenish. I mean, you had Jason Hayward, Freddie Freeman, Craig Kimbrell, Julio Tehran, they all came along, and then the talent pipeline kind of stopped. And that's where I think that they realized that you know, they've got to make a decision one way or another about retaining some of these players. So they started signing, you know, Freeman, uh, Kimbrell, Tehran, Andrelton Simmons. They signed them all to multi-year extensions. And then, oddly enough, within about a year or so, you saw these guys get traded away in addition to Jason Hayward. But I think they did pretty well in the returns that they got for the most part. Maybe Kimbrell hasn't quite given them everything that they would have liked back, but a lot of that was done to get rid of B.J. Upton. But to make a long story short, there's a lot of nuance here and, and a lot of hindsight, I guess, that we could put on. But I think that they've done well. And I think that we're going to find out exactly how well they've done beginning maybe this summer and, of course, over the next two, three, four years. The Braves are leading the National League in run differential, runs per game. Their offense has really been on fire. I think everyone in their starting lineup has an OPS plus over 100, with the exception of Inciarte, who adds a lot of value defensively, and he's not that far off anyway. But overall, what's been the change in their offensive strategy here? The interesting thing about the Braves' offensive strategy has been their aggressiveness early in counts and also their aggressiveness on the base paths. I think those are the two things that stand out immediately. I mean, they look to identify, you know, early in counts, you know, hittable pitches and by studying pitchers' tendencies and all the advanced scouting and, me- and metrics and things that kind of come into what those other pitchers are looking to do as far as their general game plan. The Braves are very well studied. They're very well prepared and they're a workman style team. I mean, this team works in the cage. This team works on the field. This team works in the bases, not just coming into spring training and saying, all right, we're going to go through the motions and then get ready. And when the games count, we'll turn it on. This has been a club that's really been committed with Kevin Seitzer as the hitting coach and Jose Castro, his assistant to really changing the style in which they go about uh, each and every one of their bats. And I think a, a nice example of that would be uh, Nick Markakis, who's a guy that's a known commodity over the last 12 or so years, but not necessarily one of the most valuable players that you find when you start looking at you know, wins above replacement and a lot of the advanced stats that tell you exactly how good somebody is. He's kind of an average hitter he doesn't hurt your team but maybe he doesn't help your team and it's been a renaissance year for Markakis and a lot of that has to do with his approach at the plate and I think that he's just kind of revitalized himself in a lot of ways and it doesn't hurt to be hitting in a lineup that's got a lot of productive hitters around him another couple of guys that I would look at and say that Kevin Seitzer has done wonders with would be Tyler Flowers and Kurt Suzuki these were guys that were good but not outstanding hitters and certainly serviceable catchers and you know, a lot of Atlanta's, you know, I guess mantra has been, well, we don't really care what we get out of our catchers offensively. We're more worried about what they do behind the plate. Well, they've gotten both. I mean, Suzuki hit a career-high 19 home runs last year and did it in about half the games he usually plays, and Flowers was right up there as well. So I just kind of look at the collective um, approach of this offense as well. There's just no drop-off. You mentioned the way that runs created. That certainly, you know, shows you that this is a well-above-average lineup. I mean, they're leading the National League in hits, and extra base hits, you know, average on base percentage, uh, slugging percentage and, and stolen bases. Now, I believe they're leading all the major league baseball on that and their ability to run the base as well and to do all the little things that they need to do has made it a consistent and dangerous lineup that at any point could throw a big inning on you. And that's what they've been doing to teams, you know, night in and night out for the majority of this year. It's been really impressive to watch. Yeah, and it's fascinating. We'll get to the youth movement in a minute, but Marcakis is 34. He's in his age 34 yeah. season. 
and it's not even a breakout. It's He's basically having his best season. He's got an OPS plus right now of 155. He's never had a slash line this good. He's never been better. Is this a, a swing path guy or a launch angle guy? Did he make a, a big change, or is him is he just being more aggressive? None of his underlying numbers suggest it's fluky either. I don't really think he's changed his swing altogether you know, that much. I mean, you hear a lot of guys, and, and we hear a lot in baseball about launch angle, and there, there are certain guys around the team that you do hear it from. I mean, the Braves signed Jose Bautista not long ago. He's talking about it. I had some younger players that came into spring training, and they were talking about it. And you know, that was interesting, I guess, to to hear players kind of get into that whole uh, you know advanced. You know, this is where the game is going, and and you know, really trying to change their swings. And some of them came back with drastically different stances and drastically different um, swing path. But Nick Markakis looks like the same guy on film. I don't know what's really changed. I mean, he's, he continues to you know, work hard both in the cage and at the at the plate in general. And, you know, he's really, I think, adapted to defensively. The Braves have done a lot uh, to bring in some of the you know, the it really advanced statistics and the advanced scouting that lets, you know, the Braves defenders know, you know, where to shift to and where to go to. And that, I think, has kind of been the overall Alex Anthopoulos effect on this club. Let's give players all the information, let them decide what they want to do with it. And I think Nick has simply identified the things that worked for him at the plate and in the field and just made it part of his game. And when you think about just the work ethic, I think it's just paid off for him. I, I don't know that there's really any easy way to explain it. He doesn't really talk about launch angle. When he's asked about it, he more or less says, I just like to hit the ball out in front of the plate because if I do that, good things are going to happen. And he's been doing that a lot this year. Yeah, Anthopoulos is uh, in an interesting position. He's almost in a similar position that Brian Cashman was before the Yankees started their run with Jeter and Williams and Posada and everybody in that Cashman didn't draft any of those guys. And Anthopoulos didn't draft any of these guys. He didn't sign any of these guys internationally. But how is he different what is he doing differently than his predecessors? How is he presenting that information? How is he getting more players to buy into it? I think that really Anthopolis came in from a think tank, and I mean that in a good way, in Los Angeles, where the Dodgers had so many good baseball minds all together under one tree, and each one of them, where one may stop, where one may you know leave off, the other one picks up. And I think that he learned a lot, not even as the main executive, but just as one of the vice presidents out there under Andrew Friedman and, and what the Dodgers have built in general. And I think that he was able to take what he learned and knew and his tendencies and things that may have worked for him or or that were his strengths with the Blue Jays and take him over to the Dodgers and get to a table, basically, maybe just call it a, like a round table and sit around and, and really see for the last couple of years what it is that's made the L.A. Dodgers so good. It's not just the money. I mean, the money helps, but the Dodgers have just the, the best – player development it seems and, and not just at the minor league level but at the big league level they don't stop developing you once you reach the big leagues they continue to develop players all the way through and i think that's what anthopolis has brought over and i think that you know brian snicker the brace manager is what 43 years into his career as a player a coach and now a big league manager he was excited about the presentation and the level of detail and the quality of the numbers and the information that Anthopoulos and his front office was providing and was preaching and was looking to you know utilize this year. And when people buy in to a system, especially one that can work, I, I think you'll see the kind of results that the Braves have put together this year. Now, are they going to be the leading offense when we're 
if we sit down and on October the 1st and talk about the 162, I don't know. But I feel like they're going to be up there because the consistency across the board has been really eye-opening. It speaks to the players, it speaks to the coaches, and it speaks to the front office. Ronald Acuna was the number one prospect in baseball, and I'm fascinated by him not just because he's young and already very good, but his development path, he wasn't Vlad Guerrero Jr. He wasn't that highest-paid international prospect. He wasn't given a $5 million bonus. He was a guy that was signed, but he wasn't really, I don't want to call him an afterthought, but he wasn't thought of as an elite prospect. And then last year, within one year, he goes from single-A to double-A to triple-A, and he was dominant at every level and improving at every level. What happened here? How did he become the game's best prospect? I think this was one of those maybe diamonds in the rough kind of guys where the talent jumped off the page, the raw ability. And he comes from a baseball family. His father was a farmhand with the Mets and uh, the, the Blue Jays, and maybe another club for about seven or eight years. And then he went down to Venezuela and continued to play down there professionally. But he's, his cousins, the uh, Escobars, um, including, I believe, Alcides Escobar and some of the others that um, have played over the last what, 15, 20 years or more. Those are guys. Uh, Kelvin Escobar is one of his cousins as well. You know, They've been in the game, so he grew up in it. His grandfather was a prospect with the Houston Astros way back in the 70s. So baseball, I think, is just in his blood. And that's something that, you know, it's those guys are valuable to find. I mean, and obviously we know Latin America has embraced baseball like few other cultures in the world. And I, I think that with Ronald Acuna, it was really just a perfect storm of physical ability and the, the desire to play the game and the fact that he was just born into it. It's just what he was born to do. Um, but as far as the Braves finding him, I mean, he was just a guy that when they went down and did the international scouting, it just kind of jumped out. And there was a story that came out, I believe, about a month or month and a half ago that the Royals had an offer on the table for him of just $50,000. That's what he was prepared to sign. And the Braves called and said, hey, we'll double it. And he said, all right. And he signed, you know, I believe that next day. And that was back in 2015. And it, it just it just seems to be like kind of a fairy tale of sorts because he came in and immediately when you watch him, it's just different. He runs differently. He throws differently. He hits, you know, you can see it immediately. It's just an identifiable, you know, characteristic across the board, all five tools. This is a guy who stands out. You gravitate toward him. You know, talent wise, if you stand anywhere near the batting cage, it's readily apparent that this guy is a special hitter and he does everything in every facet of the game. Well, and that kind of talent, I guess just wasn't going to be held down. He wasn't going to go level to level. I mean, he went from uh, low A ball in 2016 to high A in 2017 to double A to triple A to the Arizona Fall League, and he got better every single step. And I believe there was a stop in Australia to play in that league too, and he was good there. So it's been amazing to watch. It's happened very quickly, but it's the talent that jumps off the page, and he's just it's just he belongs. And I think he knows that, and I think that he's he makes quick adjustments, and that allows him to – go through quickly you know the slumps that every player is going to have young or old he just does it all and when you can do it all i guess the sky's the limit and the braves are going to find out exactly how good this ronald acuna kid can be what's interesting about him is there's already like hall of fame buzz around him he needs another you know 20 <laughs> years of being productive yeah, but jay jaffe had a piece on fan graphs about you know young players who come up and they're productive when they're 20 and it's uh, obviously those guys have a much a uh, likelier chance of making the Hall of Fame than just an average player. Has he heard some of this buzz? Like some of there was even at a you know future MVP, future Hall of Famer. Does he hear these things? Does that let it? Does he let it affect him at all? 
Yeah, and he's heard it all, believe me. But I, I do think this, and I did a profile uh, on 92.9thegame.com, the radio station I work for, and I, I write you know, a few features every week and just look to find stories that interest me. And Acuna's story obviously is interesting from a purely baseball standpoint. But I did kind of that dive into his family, you know, his father, what his father thinks of his son being – and I asked him. You know, is it kind of surreal or weird or different? Or how does your father react to the fact that, you know, you're knocking on the door of the big leagues, a place that he didn't get, a place that his grandfather didn't get? And not only that, but you're the top young player in baseball, according to just about everybody that is not, I guess, considering Shohei Otani to be the best young player in baseball. And he said, you know, my father's happy for me. They're excited for me. My whole family's excited for me. And, and I'm just basically he's saying the right things. He's grateful for the opportunity realizes he's going to have to continue to work in order to get there and stay there. But the early returns, again, you know, you just, you see the things he, he does. I think that's saw there's a note that seems to come out every single week about, you know, what is Ronald or every single night, almost what has Ronald Acuna done at the age of 20 that no other player has done save maybe Andrew Jones or, you know, some other great young player. And I think the, the most recent one was in the last 110 years. He became the first player at the age of 20 or younger to drive in the go-ahead run in the eighth inning or later in a Major League Baseball game. And you just don't think about it, and then you realize not many guys are up playing every day at the age of 20 in Major League Baseball, no matter what era you go back to. So he continues to get these little notes, these little caveats that go with just about everything he does, and he does hear them. But I think in some respects, and this maybe just speaks to – you know, where he comes from and, and just the general culture around baseball, I think he is able to shield himself a little bit thanks to the language barrier. He's not having to feel it, the full brunt and effect of, you know, being called the next Mike Trout because he can, he's still learning his English. He has an interpreter. He's able to really concentrate on baseball with, a, I think, a good support group around him, including Ozzy Albies, who, you know, those two are thick as Steve's. They call themselves, you know, just brothers. I mean, they're excited to be playing together. I think that he's got all the things around him he needs to keep him grounded enough to get acclimated. And that's been a huge help for him to not have to hear and read and see nothing but buzz about, hey, you're the next Mike Trout. Hey, you're the next Bryce Harper. Hey, maybe you're better than both of them, because I think that's a lot to put on any player, no matter how good they are. Well, let's talk about Albies for a little bit. He's been exceptional really since he's been called up last year. What's surprising to me about Albies is his power. None of the scouting reports coming out about him had power like this projected on him. Is this power here to stay for him? I can't imagine it's not. And I thought, you know, well, maybe he's just running into a couple of pitches here and there. The league will adjust. They'll change. They'll stop throwing him strikes. And there's a little bit of that. I think they're trying to work him more up in the zone now. But he adjusts. He adjusts quickly. And he's a switch hitter, which also helps him out in terms of he's a natural right-handed hitter who wears out lefties. And he continues to work hard to bring his left-handed swing, the one he's going to use predominantly because of the fact there's so many more right-handed pitchers in the game. He's worked hard to deliver that power, but he has two really, to me, different swings, different leg kicks, different setups, and and I won't say different swing paths, but if you look at him and were to put his right-handed swing in a mirror next to his left-handed swing or vice versa, they look a little bit different, but it's the same guy, and he just makes it work, and he identifies you know, early in counts. If pitchers are going to throw him strikes, he will narrow in on a particular area, and if that pitch is there, he will do some maximum damage. He's 5'9", I think 175 pounds. But of players that I've met in the 15 or so years I've been in baseball, Ozzie Albies may have the strongest handshake of any player that I've met. And that's 
says a lot when you think about he's probably one of the smallest players that you'll meet in Major League Baseball. But there's a lot of power packed in that body, and he gets maximum effort and maximum power out of that swing. So I'm not going to say he's here to win home run crowns and home run derbies and hit 500 homers, but he's going to do some damage. And it's kind of in the same vein of Jose Altuve. Nobody expected it, but he brought himself to that level. It's just about maximizing what you have and your swing. And we all, we're seeing baseball, the, you know, revolutionizing the way that, you know, players go about, you know, creating the perfect swing. And I think that Ozzy Albies is one of those guys who's, who's on that train and he's going to ride it as far as it can go. I don't mean this next question to come across as obnoxious, but I wonder if the Braves, they were built on pitching. The whole, the, most of their draft picks over the last 10 years have been pitchers. Their first round picks have been pitchers. They've really emphasized pitching. They wanted to try and go back to the days of Maddox and Glavin and Smoltz. And that's like a, a fantasy in theory. The idea of getting three Hall of Famers in a rotation again is it's like never going to happen. That's going to happen once in a lifetime. But they've still built by pitching. Then Albies and Acuna come up, and they're both so good. Did they kind of luck into this situation that their offense is this good? Not necessarily, but in some ways, I, I don't think that that's necessarily a stretch. Because the big thing was, and this is obviously has subject to change since Atlanta's GM changed with Anthopolis coming in and John Coppola receiving a lifetime ban, but the Coppola-Hart regime was built on drafting their pitchers in June and getting all their pitchers stateside and looking to the international market to sign the young position players. And that's a pretty sound strategy when you think about it because so many dynamic, young, talented position players do come from Latin America. And that's what the Braves were going to focus on doing. Now, I don't think that they necessarily lucked into Ozzy Albies. I mean, they went out and scouted him and found him and I don't think they knew what he was going to be now. There's nobody with a straight face can say, oh, I knew Ozzy Albies was going to be leading the major league in extra base hits on any day other than maybe opening day of the season. I mean, certainly not as we approach Memorial Day, but that's where he is. You look up at the at the leaderboard across the National League, and it's Ozzy Albies, Ozzy Albies, Ozzy Albies, everywhere in the power department, and it's pretty crazy to see. But with Acuna, you heard a lot more about him than I think than you did Albies because of the prospect pedigree that he developed over the year, year and a half that he really burst onto the scene. But it, it's hard to say that they necessarily lucked into him because they certainly did their due diligence in finding these guys and identifying maximum value, certainly, because I think Ozzy signed for 300000 Acuna signed for 100000 I think the Braves gave Kyle Wright, what, $7 million, $6.5 million in the draft last year as a number five overall pick. Imagine if you could spend $7 million on more Ronald Acuna's and more Ozzy Albies. I mean, that's, that, would be, uh, that would be quite the dream. But you know, they're, they're really um, – the pitching is important, but a lot of folks will say that that's not the place to, to do your rebuild. That's not the place to focus because it's so volatile – but the Braves went out, they traded for guys like Sean Newcomb, Mike fulton and Max Freed, and then they went out and drafted their Colby Allards and Mike Sorokas and you know um, Kyle Wright, Ian Anderson, a bunch of these other guys. I mean, they got Luis Gohara in a trade. They just kept stockpiling arms. So they were kind of playing a numbers game on the pitching side of things. And while they did that, the pitching overshadowed a lot of what was going on on the position player side. But it's not just Acuna and Albies. They've got this kid, Austin Riley, who could be their future at third base. He has legitimate, big-time power. And another thing that Copalella and Hart did is they went out and took a chance on prospects that may have 
soured on other organizations like Alex Jackson, who they got from the Mariners. I mean, he had a tremendous year in 2017, off to a slow start this year, but he moved back to catcher. That's another position, obviously, that clubs want to be able to fill in a long-term plan. And then a couple of their international signings, those that weren't lost in the Major League Baseball sanctions, Christian Pache. That's another guy to look at that could be an impact player for the Braves in the next two years. So they did a nice job of diversifying their portfolios, so to speak, a little bit more than I think people gave them credit for because you just kept seeing them go back to the well early in the draft and take all these pitchers. And I don't blame them for doing them. They're, they're great value, but you know they, they just had to choose, I guess. And, and pitching is what they want to do on the amateur side. And internationally speaking, I think they've you know struck gold in quite a few different uh, respects when it comes to the Acunas, the Albies, and Christian Pache and whoever else may be behind them. I want to get into the pitching staff in just a minute. Before we go there, I want to ask you about Dansby Swanson. Swanson, when he first came up for 40 games or so in 2016, he was good. He was a good player. Last year, he really, really struggled. And this year, before he went on the DL, he was playing well again. So I guess the real question here is, who's the real Dansby Swanson? I think it's the guy that we're seeing more so this year. But I think that the guy that went through 2017 has helped Dansby Swanson get back to the essence of the player that he truly is. I mean, Dansby was more talented than his 2017 would indicate, but I think that a number of different things really conspired to, I don't want to say distract, but the the pressures that came with having your face slapped on every billboard and advertisement and commercial and, you know, every, you know, moving van or truck or bus or anything that the Braves had out in the community, I mean, it's Dansby Swanson. And this is a kid that had played 29 Major League Baseball games, I think it was, or something like that, heading into 2017. And I I think that they should learn a lot from how you market your young players because being from Marietta, Georgia, which is uh, not too far from the ballpark, the the Braves' new park, maybe it seemed like a natural fit and the marketing department enjoyed that. But I think from a player development standpoint – That didn't really do him any favors because it skyrocketed the expectations, and I think that that played a part. Also, as you get out and play a little bit in the big leagues, we know from just talking a little bit earlier, the advanced scouting now, if they find something that you don't do well, they're going to keep going to that well over and over and over until you prove you can do it. And they found Dansby Swanson's flaws with sliders last year, and he was slow to adjust. He had never really experienced any kind of failure, certainly not much, if any, in the minor leagues, none at Vanderbilt, and none as an amateur player you know, prior to that. So I think it was kind of a wake-up call in a lot of ways and, and a lot of valuable experience. And Dansby was a guy that, when you talk to Freddie Freeman or Nick Markakis or some of the other guys who were around the club and around Dansby every day, they weren't really worried about him because they knew that he was mentally equipped to handle it, but they also knew that he was going to have to find himself through this process. And I think that he never really let it truly get him down. I think he continued to work, which is a huge plus. He didn't, you know, give up and circle the wagons and just say, well, I'm just never going to change. And this is what we're going to get stubborn. He was, he's a coachable guy and he's the guy that is talented and he may never be the most talented guy on the field at any given time, but his intangibles and tangibles together make the club better. And I think that's what he got back to over the winter. He, He got a little bit of a break came back in in the, in the spring. He made some adjustments to his swing. His plate coverage has been better this year, and I think that's obviously been a huge reason you know, why he's been back to the player that he was before. Also, and the one other thing, kind of on the flip side of the coin with all the expectations of 2016, 
he came in with a little bit less of that this spring because you weren't hearing about Dansby Swanson again. You're hearing about Ronald Acuna and Ozzy Albies and some of these other guys. So he kind of got to work in the background a little where people might have questioned, hey, is he going to get back to what he's supposed to be or, or whatnot? But I, I think that that benefited him some. Just the confidence that comes with having success, I think, really paid off for him this year. And hopefully this wrist thing won't keep him out for very long and he's able to get right back to it. While year-to-date, the Braves' offense has been elite. The pitching staff has been good. It's in the top 10 in most categories. Newcomb and Fultonewich are young pitchers who are both performing well. Julio Tehran has been there for seemingly forever. He's still not that old, but he was a guy that had some velocity dip in spring training that carried on in early into the season. He really got hit hard those first few starts, but he's been effective since then. Is he a guy that the Braves trust can be their number one or number two starter going into a potential playoff push? Yeah, I mean, they're going to have to unless or until they decide that they want to go out and, and get that you know, marquee name or arm from another organization. Like if they, because when you think about it, and this is in addition to Julio, if you decide that he's a number two or number three starter and that's where he's best fit as opposed to being that de facto number one, which he's really been since the age of, I think, 22, um, you go out and get somebody that can help take some of that responsibility at the front of the rotation. You know, whether it's a Tim Hudson type that the Braves have for so many years, who was a durable and, and you know, competitive number one type starter, though he may not be, you know, the John Smoltz that the Braves were used to for so many years. That could help a lot. But I, I think that Tehran is certainly useful, but it, it consistency was a key for him. He was not consistent at home last year. He pitched pretty well on the road, but at home, it was the SunTrust Park was a nightmare for him. He couldn't really get his slider to you know, work for him for whatever reason, it, seemingly more so in home starts. And his fastball was hittable last year. He's one of those guys that I don't think necessarily needs the, you know, low to mid 90s fastball in order to be successful. I think he's deceptive. And I think that he's what some hitters have described as sneaky quick because of the way that he pitches and the way that he disguises and, and repeats his delivery and his arm angle. As long as he's doing that, he's a guy that's going to be effective. But I think that the Braves would like to add someone, you know, someone may grow up in the rotation or grow up in the minor leagues and become that guy. But I think that that depth, that pitching depth is something they can dip into to maybe go out and get the kind of starter that could take that mantle of being the number one and allow Julio Tehran to kind of slide into that secondary role, which he may be better suited for. The projection systems are now projecting the Braves to be about a 500 team within a few wins either way, which still doesn't get you into the playoffs. Internally, I don't know what the Braves are projecting going forward, but do you think this is a year where they make a big push and push in all their chips and try and acquire at the deadline and not just acquire a role player, but try to acquire a significant piece going forward? Yeah, quite possibly. This could be a year where they do that. And I think that if you're a team, any team in, in either league and of, of any age or no matter where you've been the last few years, if you're within you know, three or four games of a wild card, when you get into the middle of July in the All-Star break, I think you owe it to yourself to go out and try to make your team better. Otherwise, you're, you're really throwing the towel in, I think, a bit too quickly. Now, if you're seven, eight games back in the wild card and nowhere close in your division, I think you, you kind of know what you are rolling into July and rolling into the first trade deadline. You know, that would be, I think, unfortunate for the Braves because obviously a lot of bad things would have to happen for them to really fall on, on hard times and, and be out of it come the All-Star break because we're coming up on Memorial Day. We're less than two months from the All-Star game, and the Braves' offense has really showed no signs of slowing down. So the pitching, I think, is going to take them as far as, you know, the pitching will be, I think, the determining factor of taking them as far as they can go. But the offense is going to keep them in games consistently is what it looks like to me. 
Now, some folks get really big, you know, I guess a big stomach, if you will, when it comes to wanting to to go out and just take everything off that you know veritable buffet line at the at the trade deadline, and you know they want to go well make a push for Manny Machado or, or you know trade for this guy and that guy, and they walk into free agency, and then you give up your young pieces, and maybe you do or don't win. Um, I think that Alex Anthopoulos wants to create a long term winner, but I also think that he wants to you know and has been taking an inventory of what he has as far as assets. And wants to figure out how best to utilize them, both in making the club better by keeping them, and also figuring out who they can deal and what you know deals might be available to make this club better, but to open up a window of contention rather than short-term gains. I, I think that it would be foolish for the Braves to spend three or four years of rebuilding and drafting and trading and you know putting together this great minor league system, only to throw it away you know for a lottery ticket. So. We'll see how they approach it. I'm not saying they won't go out and, and make moves for these guys if they can, but to overpay for you know a marquee player walking into free agency, I don't think that's the route the Braves want to go. I think they want to find players that can stick around for a little while and help make this club better beyond 2018 because I think the future is very, very bright over the next three, four, five years or more. You've been listening to Grant McCauley. Grant covers the Braves for 92.9 The Game in Atlanta. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Grant McCauley. Grant, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. All righty, I appreciate it.